Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the life of Gautama, the Scythian sage. We'll be looking at new historical interpretations of what is known today as the Buddhist religion. With me is Jason Reza Giorgiani. He is the author of Lovers of Sophia, Prometheus and Atlas, Novel Folklore, World State of Emergency, and Iranian Leviathan. Welcome, Jason. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jeffrey. I've been looking forward to having this particular discussion with you for a long time now. Well, this discussion is based on new historical interpretations of uh, the history of Gautama, the founder of the you know, Buddhist philosophical religious tradition. And uh, these interpretations uh, differ radically from the uh, orthodox interpretations that come from within the various Buddhist uh, traditions today. They do. Uh, and um, the presence of Buddhism in Central Asia in what was Eastern Iran up till only 150 years ago has been largely neglected by uh, scholars of Buddhism and also uh, Iranologists, people mm -hmm. in the field of Iranian studies. And there's been a new focus on the uh, cultural uh, matrix for the rise of Buddhism in eastern Iran and an examination of the life of Gautama in the context of the Scythian society. Mm -hmm. Well, I gather uh, a lot of the uh, new scholarly work in this area is based on the original reports of uh, Greek philosophers who traveled into uh, eastern Iran and even into India with Alexander the Great uh, shortly uh, after the life of Buddha, maybe what, less than 200 years that's right. Uh, in the 300s, in uh, around 334 BC, Pyro of Elis accompanied uh, Alexander into eastern Iran, and uh, particularly a region that is known as uh, Kandahara, which in contemporary geography is about southern Afghanistan into Pakistan. And this was uh, eastern Iran for most of its history. So um, these Greeks, Megasthenes was another one, who uh, traveled with Alexander and who were part of the Hellenistic conquest of the Persian Empire, they encountered what they called uh, Iranian philosophoi. Um, and in fact, many of the early Greek writers claimed that philosophy came from, from the barbaroi, from the barbarians in general. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is often thought of in terms of a Zoroastrian influence on the rise of philosophy in Ionia. Uh, however, there's, there's another branch of the Iranian um, family that contributes to the rise of philosophy, and, and that's the Eastern branch, the Scythian branch. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, one of the pre-Socratic philosophers was a man by the name of uh, Anacharsis, Anacharsis the Scythian, who was so revered by the... Um, the late archaic and, and early classical Greeks, that he was counted among the seven sages of antiquity. And um, Anacharsis is a kind of, of herald of um, some of the ideas that we're going to be discussing in terms of Gautama, uh, the herald of a kind of uh, anarchic metaphysics and epistemology that uh, you also see to an extent in in another pre-Socratic thinker, Heraclitus of Ephesus. Mm -hmm. Anacharsis was famous for the problem of the criterion, the question of um, uh, how there can be uh, absolute guidelines, uh, legitimate guidelines for judging any matter, uh, for, for judging pragmata, matters of various kinds, and who is qualified to apply these criteria. Uh, so... You know, even before these Greeks traveled with Alexander as part of the Hellenistic conquest of Iran to Kandahara, the Greeks were familiar with Scythian thought through Anacharsis. And when they arrived in Kandahara, 
they encountered these philosophoi who they referred to as shramanas. And um, this term shramana is found in a number of Iranian languages uh, in Central Asia. And uh, its uh, cognates in, in other Iranian languages are shamana and samana. Uh, the, the name of the dynasty in Iranian history, Samanyan, comes from samana. And, of course, shamana is recognizable to, to an English-speaking ear as uh, shaman, sham, mm-hmm. shamanism. So the, the Scythians were shamanists. They were uh, semi-nomadic people. Um, nomads in, in the quintessential sense of the word are people looking for pasture lands, people roving to look for pasture lands. And uh, they were practitioners of shamanism, uh, albeit a shamanism um, that particularly revered Mithra. Mm-hmm. And so, but these particular uh, shramanas or shamanists that were encountered by the Greeks who traveled with Alexander and were part of the Hellenistic colonization of eastern Iran were followers of Gotama Sakamuni. And they were described by the Greeks as seekers of Bodhi and um, followers of the Dharma. Mm-hmm. So what is being described here by these Greeks is the earliest form of Buddhism. Uh, without the term Buddhism being used, without the term even Buddha Dharma being used, um, they are describing the most primitive form of Buddhism about uh, still, I think, let's say, 300 years or so, maybe 200 years before the Pali Canon was put into writing. The Pali Canon uh, was put into writing only several centuries after the time of Buddha. And so the accounts that we're getting from these Greeks uh, are much closer to the life of Gautama than what we see in the Pali Canon. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, let's talk for a moment about the Scythians, because I gather that uh, they uh, they were not necessarily well organized, being a kind of nomadic, shim- shamanic uh, people, but uh, like the Mongolians who came much later, they uh, occupied a, a vast territory all the way from China into Europe. That's right. Uh, so the Scythians are one branch of the Iranian ethno-linguistic family. Uh, and, you know, they were never successfully conquered by any of the Persian empires. Um, Cyrus the Great was killed by a Scythian. Yeah, we did a whole uh, interview right. about the, the Amazons, Artemis and the Amazons, yes, and yes. the warrior queen who killed Cyrus. Yes, Tomyris was a Scythian queen. Yes. Uh, and so actually, you know, women had a fairly prominent position in their society, mm-hmm. uh, even as warlords. So these people, uh, they, they killed Zarathustra during a Scythian invasion of central Iran. They killed Cyrus the Great. Darius was defeated by them in two battles. Uh, so they resisted centralized authority, and their base of operations was somewhere between the Black Sea, what they call the Pontic Steppe around the Black Sea, into Central Asia. But they extended as far to the east as the Gobi Desert in China, and as far to the west as uh, parts of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the term we've discussed in a previous interview, the term Saxon, comes from the name of the Scythians in the Iranian language, which is Seka. Sakos' son are the descendants of the Scythians, the Saxons. Uh, and so the earliest attestation of the name of Gotama is not as Shakyamuni, which is a later corruption, but as Sakamuni. And Sakamuni means the Scythian sage. And it's said that um, Gotama was from Kapil. Well, in Iranian languages... P and B are often interchangeable. So, for example, in the Sassanid period, we have a queen that is often referred to as Purandocht, but her name was actually Burandocht, uh, which incidentally means blondie. A weird <laughs> name, right? She had blonde hair. Yep. Uh, and then uh, Mani, when he composes a treatise dedicated to the king Shapur, instead of calling it Shapurgan, he calls it Shaburgan. So, P and B are interchangeable. And some of these... Um, Scholars recently uh, re-examining the life of Gautama have suggested that Kapil is actually Kabul. And that would make sense in terms of the geographical extent of the Scythian culture because the lowest uh, uh, branch of the Scythians, the Indo-Scythians, uh, were centered in Afghanistan and a part of contemporary Iran known as Sistan. Mm. Sistan and Baluchistan. The greatest hero of the Iranian national epic Rostam 
is from this area, Sistan. And the name Sistan itself is a contraction of Sakastana, meaning the Scythian realm. Okay. Sakastana. Mm -hmm. So this is an area of Iran going into contemporary Pakistan, northernmost India, and parts of Afghanistan. Kabul is in that general region. And some have suggested that this Kabul that Gautama, the Scythian sage, was from is actually Kabul. Mm -hmm. Now, which this differs very dramatically, to my understanding, from the traditional uh, biographical attributions. Yeah, well, the Lumbini birth story and all this is from hundreds of years after the time of Buddha. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are many instances in the history of religions uh, of manufactured biographies for obscure historical figures, mm -hmm. uh, not the least of which are Jesus and, you know, looking at the history of Iran itself, Zarathustra, because... We have very little biographical detail about Zarathustra that comes from the Gathas itself. And later accounts that are very detailed of the life of Zarathustra that we see in the Avesta in Middle Persian are, are in all likelihood, you know, manufactured. And some of them conflict very badly with each other, even mm -hmm. in terms of where the man lived. So, you know, it's, it's very routine in the history of religion to see, you know, uh, hundreds of years later, people manufacture a biography for the founder of a tradition. But in the particular case of Gautama, as we'll come around to discussing, I think there's a good reason why a uh, false biography was manufactured for the man. Well, let, let's discuss that. Uh, based on these Greek uh, writers, uh, what kind of a uh, philosophy or religion did they discover? So... The most fascinating thing to me about this uh, this uh, report we're receiving from Greeks of the way the Shramanas lived and their worldview is that it's a lot closer to early Taoism than to institutionalized Buddhism. Now, of course, there are certain overlaps between Buddhism and Taoism that allowed for Zen eventually to develop in China as a synthesis of them, Chan to develop in China as a synthesis of these two philosophical schools. So there's certain overlap. But um, the, the radicalness of the emphasis on, for example, uh, Anatman, that nothing has any inherent essence, yes. and anitya, that all things are impermanent and in a state of flux. Um, and the idea that the reason that we, we experience dukha or um, dissatisfaction, suffering, mm -hmm. is because we are constantly trying to approach a world that is in a state of flux with fixed categories and expectations of perfection and permanence mm -hmm. that are defied by the nature of reality. So, so for example, the word uh, dukha actually literally means something that doesn't turn properly. Sukha is like a smoothly turning wheel, mm -hmm. and dukha is like a, an, a wheel that's off its axle. I see. And that's how life becomes for you if you try to approach a world that's in a state of flux with fixed ideas mm -hmm. and in terms of binary oppositions that that aren't reflective of reality. Because if nothing has any inherent essence... Uh, and everything is in a state of flux, it also means that everything is codependent. Things are, are fundamentally interde interdependent, what the Buddhists call dependent origination. Right. And these ideas in Buddhism are very close to the worldview that we see in the Tao Te Ching. Mm -hmm. Other, and, and these are ideas that uh, I think any modern Buddhist would recognize. Most definitely. The problem is, and the problem that I've always had, uh, you know, when I've studied Buddhism, uh, is that this kind of, let's say, radically anarchic metaphysics and epistemology doesn't sit very well with the institutionalized aspects of Buddhism, like, you know, the, um, the rules that govern the monastic order, mm -hmm. the various uh, dogmatic prescriptions for the monastic life, and just the general institutional structure of the Sangha. And these Greek authors that are traveling with Alexander claimed that there was no such thing as the Sangha in this time, that it wasn't part of the Shramana way of life. Now, a Sangha, for our viewers who may not know, means the community. Yes, the community of monks and nuns mm -hmm. uh, that uh, live according to some very um, rigorous guidelines mm -hmm. of their conduct. And this seems to be in tension with Gautama's emphasis on the fact that 
to believe that any path is the absolutely true path and the one and only path is a delusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the, the teaching of Gautama, as we can reconstruct it from those Greek texts, uh, would be a teaching that the path is a pathless path. Yep. And the, the right way is no way at all. And so that's much more consonant with, with Lao Tzu, with Lao Tzu's teaching in the Tao Te Ching. And you do find in Buddhism a kind of tension between the initial teachings, the Eightfold Path of mm-hmm. Buddhism and the, what, the Four Noble Truths, yeah. as I recall it. But then later on, as you get into the Heart Sutra and the Diamond Sutra, it's all about letting go of those early teachings. Yes, and I want to come back to what I was saying about Lao Tzu and the, and the you know, the way in which uh, these teachings described by the Greeks are much closer to Taoism in just a minute. But yeah. since you mentioned the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths, yeah. I just want to make note of the fact that in terms of uh, Gautama having been a Scythian, meaning an Iranian, mm-hmm. the original name for the Four Noble Truths is Arya Chatvari Satyani. And the original name for the Eightfold Path is Arya Ashtanga Marga. In other words, the Aryan fourfold truths and the Aryan eightfold path. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for anyone who's done minimal Iranian studies, Aryan and, and Iranian are interchangeable. Mm-hmm. It's just the older form of the word Iranian. So, I mean, the four noble truths, the Iranian four uh, truths and the Iranian eightfold path. People aren't used to thinking of it that way, but this is what Buddhists call the fundamental precepts of their teaching mm-hmm. in the Sanskrit language. Well, I gather that uh, traditionally people regard Buddhism to be uh, something of a reform movement that arose within the uh, Hindu uh, Vedantic milieu. Uh, you seem to be suggesting, though, that as as an Iranian tradition, it it arose uh, as a perhaps as a reform movement, but not uh, so much opposed to uh, Vedic thought, but opposed to Zarathustrian thought. Yes, and I can't take credit for that. Uh, Beckwith, in a book called Greek Buddha, um, has has drawn on a wide variety of recent scholarship mm-hmm. to argue that, and including scholarship at, at, on the Vedic tradition, mm-hmm. to argue that actually the structure of the teaching we can reconstruct from the Greek accounts of the Shramana way of life and worldview is much uh, more clearly a critical response to Zoroastrianism than it is situated in terms of uh, Vedic philosophy. And he also claims that there is no good evidence that the Upanishads had even been written down before the time of Gautama. Mm -hmm. And so the, the Hindu philosophical schools were either contemporaneous with the Buddha or were subsequent to the time of the Buddha. And both of them were responses to the rise of Zoroastrianism and its imposition as far east as northern India by the Persian Empire. And so you can see very clearly when you, you know, put the the primitive Buddhist teaching next to Zoroastrianism, how Gautama is engaging in a point-for-point critique of the Zoroastrian worldview. So, so for example, you know, the idea of... Um, a realm of perfect archetypes pre-existing the creation of the material world and that throughout the course of history uh, we will get to a point where the material world will be transmuted so that it becomes a perfect embodiment of those archetypes, those primordial archetypes. That is completely... uh, uh, deconstructed by that, the idea that nothing has any inherent essence. That's a Zoroastrian idea. Yes, the idea of fravashis, perfect archetypes pre-existing the creation of the world, and of a frashgard at the end of time, which will remold this world into a perfect reflection of the archetypal reality, that is deconstructed by uh, having the insight that nothing has any inherent essence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the, the ultimate nature of reality is shunya, it's, it's voidness. So, and then you have the idea of, of Ahura Mazda, right, uh, as a, a perfect, all-knowing God. And uh, again, this idea of, of an entity that is permanent, whose existence is eternal, and who's self-identical, this is, um, is also uh, 
critiqued both by the ideas of anitya, of impermanence, the impermanence of all phenomena, and of anatman. You know, Buddhism is famously atheistic. I mean, one of the fundamental teachings of Buddha is that there, there is no uh, God in, an, in a universalistic and absolute and cosmic mm-hmm. sense, and that to the extent that there are gods, they're just like us. They're, they're uh, humanoid beings with more abilities, with more cities, and in many cases, they're more deluded than human beings. And, uh, you know, one of the most fascinating points to me always in, in the teachings of the Buddha was his claim that the gods, um, ha- uh, it's much harder for them to attain bodhi than it is for human beings because they've spent all these lives in the heavenly realms, mm. uh, constantly, you know, um, being diverted in their pleasure domes and so on and so forth. And, and also uh, indulging their wrath and their lust for control and power so that when they're eventually reborn as human beings, it's a very hard fall for them to be reincar- re- reborn. They don't say reincarnated, reborn as a human being, and then have to strive for enlightenment again uh, in the context of the human condition. So you, you can see that you know the, the teaching of, of Buddha is very much in tension with Zoroastrianism. Another important uh, contrast there is that the Zoroastrians, of course, have the idea of an immortal soul, and that this immortal soul is going to be rewarded for its deeds in this life after death. Well, according to Buddha, we have no self. And it's very complex philosophically to understand how you can teach the doctrine of no self and at the same time affirm that there's rebirth. In other words, that elements of a person's memories and persona can be rewoven from lifetime to lifetime without there being any essential self, any any mm-hmm. fundamental locus of consciousness that remains identical from one incarnation to another. But that is, in fact, the Buddha's teaching, that there is no fundamental self and that any persona has a dependent origination in the course of time, and it will eventually dissolve into, into nirvana. Well, that is fundamentally at odds with, with Zoroastrianism's emphasis on the immortality of the human soul. Mm-hmm. Well, I gather that in this ancient period in which uh, Gotama lived, uh, it was it was a vibrant culture. Uh, it, whether you're talking about the Hindu Vedic culture or or the Iranian uh, Zoroastrian culture, they're all Aryan to some extent, and uh, uh, it's also largely pre-philosophical, as you mentioned, a, a shamanic. Culture, uh, the uh, the great philosophical arguments of uh, the Upanishads and later Shankara come a few centuries after the Buddha, I believe. Yes, and so what I'm suggesting is that there's an alternative Aryan tradition. Yeah. There's an alternative Iranian spiritual heritage, uh, alternative to Zoroastrianism in the most ancient period of Iranian history, and that is the the Buddha Dharma. And to go back to what we were saying about, uh, you know, early Taoism and Lao Tzu, um, I think that this alternative Aryan tradition also includes early Taoism. Mm-hmm. And so some of these scholars who are re-examining the life of Gautama have looked at uh, the etymology of his name. And they've noticed that um, the name uh, Lao Tzu, okay, in uh, the Taoist texts, uh, it is not actually his, his name, the, the founder of Taoism's name, because Su is an honorific title for a teacher. Su or Si means, uh, like sage, sagacious teacher. And his name in the Taoist text is actually Lao Tan. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Mandarin Lao Tan in early Middle Chinese was Kao Tam. And, uh, apparently in even more archaic Chinese, um, uh, disyllabic morphemes like kao tam had an A ending that was later dropped. And kao was pronounced gao. So it becomes gao tama. So the name of Laos, and this is coming from uh, Tang Dynasty commentary on early Taoist texts, which is referencing uh, a source from a hundred, uh, this is a commentator who's referencing an earlier source from a hundred AD, mm-hmm. when he is describing how the name of Gautama was transformed into uh, Lautan. 
And that the reason why it was done was because this unfamiliar name to a Chinese ear was given a familiar sense in Chinese because uh, Lautan apparently means uh, old long ears. And this is another piece of evidence in favor of this thesis that, that these scholars are arguing that Gotama is actually Lao Tzu uh, because Buddha is depicted with long ears in the various sculptures and, and uh, carvings that we have of him. So it seems that in his old age, this wandering sage, this wandering Scythian sage, was on the border of northwestern China, which makes perfect sense in terms of the cultural geography of the time, because uh, as few people know, that region of China was not inhabited by Chinese people, by Han Chinese people in those days. The northwestern quarter of China was Scythian and Tocharian in those days. These were Cauc Caucasoid Iranian peoples whose remains have been found in the Taklamakan Desert. Mm. And uh, so, you know, in, in the Taoist text, we're told that uh, Lao Tzu, quote-unquote, was forced to write down the Tao Te Ching by border guards as he was crossing from China back into Central Asia, in other words, Scythia, mm -hmm. to go home to die in his old age. So, you know, this again, I think, is evidence in favor of the fact that he wasn't a, a you know, Chinese person. He was a foreigner. Mm -hmm. And um, he, this is Gotama in the last phase of his life, in his old age. We don't really have uh, any other uh, historical information about Lao Tzu. That's right. Again, you're, you're dealing in manufactured biographies long after the fact when mm -hmm. people are talking about biographical I, I details. I seem to recall Tzu. some suggestion that he had been uh, some sort of a Mandarin official. Uh, some scholars for a period were arguing that the Tao Te Ching wasn't even authored by a single person and that it was a collective work. There, mm -hmm. there was that whole school of thought as well. But um, the other uh, interesting etymological evidence here is that the word Tao and Dharma are the same thing. Tao is a, a degeneration from the earlier Chinese Darwa. It went from Darwa to Dawa to Dawa. Mm. And so Darwa is, is pretty clearly Dharma. And so you have this Gautama teaching the Darwa in no, the northwest corner of China. And uh, I think it's uh, legitimate to, to think that this is Gautama the Scythian sage. And there are curious elements, aside from the metaphysical and epistemological overlap between the Tao Te Ching and the Shramana teaching as the Greek travelers are recounting it, there are curious details in the Tao Te Ching that um, suggest uh, an Iranian identity for this man. Mm. For example, there's this repeated emphasis on how it's impossible to govern the world through force to hold the world together through sharp weapons and so forth. This idea of ruling the whole world uh, repeatedly surfaces in the Tao Te Ching. And that doesn't make sense for a Chinese person because the Chinese in, the, in that period, the Han Chinese, were not in any position to be talking about ruling the world. There was only one group of people in that position, and that were the, those were the Iranians. Those were the rulers of the Persian Empire who effectively were the governors of the, of the world at that time. The known world. The known world at that time. I yeah. see. Well, uh, as we've discussed earlier, there's also the suggestion that Gotama uh, ruled that empire. So, Harvey Kraft, um, in, in a book called uh, uh, The Buddha from Babylon, has taken this idea of Gotama as a Scythian, namely as an Iranian, and he's put it next to this whole story about... Um, a ruler by the name of Gomata having been deposed in a coup uh, led by Darius the Great, the coup that brings Darius the Great, the second uh, most significant ruler of the Persian Empire, to power. And so the story is basically that um, there was a, a crisis of succession uh, in the time of the son of Cyrus the Great. Mm -hmm. uh, the emperor Cambyses was off conquering Egypt, and there was a... a it's a very convoluted story. There was a lot of court intrigue going on in his absence. Mm. There was a long absence. And there was a lot of court intrigue going on involving his brother and uh, various machinations to seize the throne, um, including by an imposter who was claiming to be his brother. At any rate, what's important is that in the midst of this crisis, the order of the Magi take power. 
which makes perfect sense. I mean, this is a, a uh, priestly elite mm -hmm. that are uh, in league with the royal court. And if the governance of the empire is, is uh, in danger, if there's a, a vacuum of power, it makes sense that the theocratic authority would step in. And the, the order of the Magi, uh, I think we discussed in a previous interview, uh, may have been founded by Zarathustra? It, it may have been, or, or uh, you know, at any rate, a large number of Magi may have come over to the teaching of Zarathustra. Mm -hmm. it, it may have predated Zarathustra. It may have pre because Zarathustra describes himself as a Zautar, or, or priest of some kind of an order. Mm -hmm. um, and he's preaching against what he calls the mumbling priests and a certain kind of sacrificial um, uh, priestly uh, type. Mm. Uh, anyway, um, the order of Magi step in. And they put forward this guy called Gomata, Gomata the Magus. And um, Darius, in his inscriptions about Gotama, insults him by calling him a stargazer. In other words, he was not only an order of the Magi, he, he was trained in the fashion of the Magi as an astrologer and astronomer. Now, you said Gotama, not Gomata. Did but, I? Okay. But I think what you're implying is there may be some identity there. Right. Harvey Kraft suggests that uh, Gomata the Magus is actually Gotama. And uh, the argument is as follows. Um, although, I mean, Kraft doesn't go into all of this detail, but basically uh, Darius sets up this huge inscription, rock carving, at a place called Bisutun in Iran. Um, Bisutun or Behistun, it's uh, from the old Persian Bagastana, the place of the gods. It's a mountain in Kermanshah in the Kurdish region of Iran. And it's actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Huge rock carving in the mountain. Uh, when the Allies occupied Iran in World War II, they used it for target practice. Oh. Uh, so, anyway, there's this huge rock carving that depicts Darius the Great in, uh, binding 19 rebel leaders who were the leaders of secessionist movements um, in revolt against his coup and his seizure of power. And the uh, mastermind of the series of revolts um, was allegedly uh, Gomata. Uh, or, or rather, Gomata, after he was deposed, Gom after Gomata was deposed, these various 19 kings rebelled against uh, the reign of Darius. And so you have this carving of Go Gomata, uh, larger than the rest of these 19 rebels, and they're all in chains. And Gomata, interestingly, has this pointed cap on, which is this, the Scythian hat, the Tigra Chauda, the pointed cap, is uh, characteristic of the Scythians. And, and as I recall from our earlier discussion, you've indicated that that style of cap uh, resembles the Buddhist stupa. Or, or well, there are two things there. First of all, the top of the Buddhist stupas yeah. look like a Scythian pointed cap. They look like a Tigra Choda, a pointed cap. But the stupa itself also is a, a kurgan. It is modeled on a Scythian burial mount. Hmm. So there are two different elements of the stupa design that reference the Scythian culture, which is another significant piece of evidence in favor of the Scythian um, cultural context for Gotama. Mm -hmm. At any rate, uh, this uh, Gomata the Magus is wearing this pointed cap, and although accounts identify him as a Mede, because the Magi, most of the Magi were Medes, what people don't realize is that the Median kingdom in the in the from the 700s into the 600s was massively overrun by Scythians, mm -hmm. and a lot of the Scythians became part of the elite administrative elite of the. Median kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Gomata the Mede, who's wearing a Scythian pointed cap, could easily have been a Scythian. Mm -hmm. At any rate, um, there's a real problem with the account that Darius gives us because he impaled these 19 rebel leaders. And in some cases, even went after their families in retribution. Okay, but he publicly impaled them. And then he tells us that he killed the mastermind, he killed, you know, the, the, the main target of his coup d'etat, uh, Gomata, in a fortress with no witnesses other than the co-conspirators who helped him come to power. Mm -hmm. So Darius had this, this <coughs> band of generals, this band of military officers, who conspired together with him uh, to seize the throne. 
And these are the only people who witnessed the death of Gomata. His body is never publicly displayed. Okay? And when you look at Darius's interactions uh, with some of these other um, uh, figures, like Otanis, who are his, his closest comrades, the military officers who are his inner circle, he does things like advise the use of, of deception and lies as stratagem in, in warfare. Mm. Um, he says at one point to his, his close comrade Otanis, when it is, is necessary to tell a lie, tell it. And he also, on another occasion, says that uh, when, um, when um, basically, uh, cunning um, subtlety is called for, force is not necessary. Mm-hmm. So this is a man who, in actual practice, employed the concept Plato calls the noble lie. And even when he seizes power, you know, he, he basically carries out this coup with an a, a, a inner circle of, of military collaborators, and then there's a question of which of them is actually going to become the Shah of Iran. And it's decided by a contest uh, involving horses who are lined up before the sunrise. And there's, a, there's a, a contest to see which of the horses will neigh first as the sun is rising. And Darius uh, coordinates with his, his um, uh, the, the groomer of his horse, a man named Oibaris, to employ a, a, uh, a basically a machination, a, a scheme, uh, whereby Oibaris goes and uh, rubs his hand, his sleeve, all over a female horse that Darius's horse is, is kind of attached to. And as the sun is rising, he, he, go, he walks by Darius's horse and lets the horse smell his sleeve so that he artificially induces this neighing, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Darius explicitly in, instructs him to carry out this, this scheme. Mm-hmm. So this guy is a schemer, even in his rise to power. I gather that his philosophy is that uh, if you can accomplish something through lies rather than force, that that's uh, the ethically appropriate thing to do. Yes, and, and the thing is, uh, Jeff, that that's horrifying for an Iranian uh, nationalist to hear because Darius the Great has been taken to be the epitome of the Zoroastrian monarch. He's conceived of as the ideal Zoroastrian monarch, and in that very inscription where he's um, boasting about his defeat of the 19 rebel leaders, he repeatedly characterizes them as liars. Uh, and this is a reference to the, the Zolai, capital L, which he also mentions in this inscription. Zolai being a synonym for Ahriman, the great deceiver. Mm-hmm. And so in Zoroastrianism, you know, in Zoroastrian ethics, the worst thing are lies. And yet, this man advocates the use of lies as stratagems, and he, it's not beneath him to use cunning deception in order to come to power and to maintain his power. So is this the kind of man who, instead of killing Gomata in that fortress without any witnesses other than his closest collaborators, would actually have let him go, would actually have exiled him rather than killing him and then told the story? I think he is. And, and let's talk about what would be his motive for doing that if, uh, after he had deposed Gomata, why, and and killed all of the other 19 uh, warlords who were supporting Gomata, why not kill Gomata too? Exactly. And and the key to understanding why that would have been the case is the invitation that Darius the Great extended to Heraclitus of Ephesus. You know, Diogenes Laertius, in his biography of Heraclitus, preserves the correspondence between uh, Darius and Heraclitus where Darius invites Heraclitus to be the court philosopher of Iran, and uh, Heraclitus basically politely declines. But what's clear from this is that Darius is a deep thinker. This man, I mean, first of all, let me just make a point of saying that uh, in no way am I trying to undermine the greatness of Darius by suggesting that he employed deceptions as stratagems. This was a brilliant leader 
who was responsible for the creation of the first intercontinental highway system. The man created the Suez Canal. He built a bridge across the Bosphorus. He invented the first postal system. He established standardized coinage instead of a barter economy. Uh, he laid the groundwork for a private banking and a credit-based financial system. Mm -hmm. The man is an absolute genius. Okay, um, He's probably among the very greatest statesmen in world history. Uh, but he was also deeply philosophically inclined because a man who invites a Greek to be the court philosopher of imperial Iran clearly has read the fragments for himself. And, you know, you, you're not a lightweight if you're processing what is being expressed in the uh, fragments of Heraclitus. And, and, and it's also another expression of a kind of cosmopolitan instinct. Yes, and what's important is that if you put the uh, fragments of Heraclitus, I mean, they're fragments now, but it was Heraclitus's book on nature. If you put that next to the Tao Te Ching, there's tremendous overlap in terms of the metaphysics and epistemology in Heraclitus and in, quote-unquote, Lao Tzu, mm -hmm. which, which I'm suggesting was Gautama. Uh, and so it means that Darius would have identified with a large part of Gautama's worldview and outlook. Mm. And he would have thought to himself, it would be a travesty to kill this man. Because he could have a, a, a very productive life as a sage, mm -hmm. just not in a position of political power. Um, when Gomata was ruling the empire, he was known for a very hands-off, laissez-faire policy, really leaving the satrapies to themselves. He um, rescinded the requirement for military service. Uh, he was very lenient in, in terms of taxes and just generally tending toward decentralized rule. Uh, which, you know, sort of presages the attitude that Lao Tzu takes toward politics in the Tao Te Ching. Uh, so you could, you could uh, imagine how Darius would think that, um, the metaphysical and epistemological outlook of this person is praiseworthy and it expresses deep insight. But to have a man like that in the position of governing this vast empire, the first world empire, could be politically ruinous. So he gave him a second lease on life as a sage exiled to the margins of the empire, to the fringe of the Persian Empire in northern India. Well, uh, of course, the traditional history of Gautama suggests he was a prince. But, uh, but I don't think there's anything in the traditional histories to suggest he actually assumed a position of being a ruler. No, but I think these biographies that were manufactured uh, hundreds of years after uh, Gautama's time are reflecting a reality of his life when they describe him as a royal, that he was a, this man was a royal who, who gave up a life of royalty mm -hmm. for the life of a sage. Mm -hmm. And the other interesting thing about the extant biographies of Gautama is that supposedly there were nine assassination attempts on this man. Why would there be nine assassination attempts on some wandering sage? It makes much more sense if uh, either Darius himself or more likely officials in the Achaemenid court sent assassins to get rid of this guy before people figured out that he was actually Gomata, the Shah of Iran, because it would expose Darius as a liar. So perhaps uh, uh, Gotama gained more notoriety than had been uh, expected. Uh, in his uh, new life as a sage in northern India. And there were court officials who were concerned that uh, people would eventually figure out the deception that had been carried out. And so they sent assassins to clean up the job. This uh, account of nine assassination attempts is much more consistent with the life of a political fugitive mm -hmm. than of a mere sage. Well, in our discussion, you have emphasized the etymological interpretations. Uh, for example, Lao, Lao Tzu and Gotama, uh, they seem like very different words, but you've shown how they're related. But Gomata and Gotama, is there any linguistic reason to think these are the same people? Well, they're almost the identical word. I mean, you get, you got a couple of letters, uh, you know, transplanted. Yeah, but would, is that likely that if someone were the ruler of a vast empire that his name would be misspelled? Uh, you know, I don't know, Jeff, but the other interesting thing is that, um, when, when we talk about Siddhartha Gautama, mm. Siddhartha also is an Iranian, uh, uh term, an honorific, um, Sid, 
Artha means the power of cosmic order, the power of truth.、Mm-hmm. Artha is the ancient Iranian concept. Uh, which is in all、uh, inscriptions of the Persian Empire、uh, for cosmic order and and truth.、Mm-hmm. So Sid, like Sidhi, power of Arta means the the power of truth or cosmic order. And this name Siddhartha Gotama is also r- recorded in the、um, uh, tablets that have been discovered at Persepolis.、Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean. I don't know. It seems to me a very close,、uh, co- uh, you know,、um, comparison between、mm-hmm. Gotama and Gomata. Well, let let me ask you about the philosophy because,、right. uh, as you've described, the original philosophy,、uh, no self,、mm-hmm. everything is impermanent,、right. uh, codependent or arising of phenomena. Everything is interconnected but impermanent.、Yeah. That philosophy, to me, st- strikes me, and I think other philosophers have noted as well. Very modern. It's very much akin to postmodernism. But the the idea of Siddhartha, the teacher of absolute truth, that almost sounds like something、uh, that the, the Buddha you've been describing was arguing against. Well,、uh, you know, Rata in Sanskrit, Rata. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the Sanskrit、uh, the Hindu equivalent of Artha,、yeah. and so it just means cosmic order.、Mm-hmm. And so, what Gotama is doing is he's redefining what cosmic order is in terms of these deconstructive concepts like shunyata, like、mm-hmm. you know the the voidness,、yeah. uh, and uh, you know in terms of anitya and so forth. It's not that he's rejecting that there is Artha, but he's he's radically redefining what Artha is. Uh, and in this connection, I, you know, wanted to also point out that the yin yang symbol has been found in、uh, the Sarmatian culture、um, in various crafts works, and the Sarmatians and the Scythians were totally intermeshed groups of、mm-hmm. of northern Iranians.、Mm-hmm. They they、uh, were often part of the same confederations. Um, and they,、uh, their geographical regions were totally interpenetrating, and you see in various、uh, Sarmatian goldwork this yin yang symbol,、uh, and this yin yang symbol is is the perfect representation of the idea of the mutual dependence of apparent opposites,、mm-hmm. um, and a critique of thinking in terms of binary categories like light and darkness, good and evil. Categories that are fundamental to the metaphysics of Zoroastrianism,、uh, and and that are reflected in the way of life of Zoroastrians. So, for example, in Zoroastrianism, you know, there's the idea that a whole range of creatures are ungodly, demonic vermin. They're demon spawn.、Uh, various insects, rodents, and so forth. Are seen as creations of Ahriman that ought to be exterminated and that don't really belong to the good creation of Ahura Mazda. Well, this is a really tangible、uh, consequence of a metaphysics that draws such a sharp distinction between good and evil, light and darkness, pure and impure. And you can see the the real tangible difference in terms of a way of life、um, that、uh, is based on a deconstruction of that kind of metaphysics、uh, in in Buddhism, where There's a respect for all animals and all sentient beings, as compared to the Zoroastrian injunction to exterminate whole classes of living creatures. So you're suggesting that Gotama was fundamentally critiquing Zoroastrian culture, not Vedic culture. Yes, and so this is a really important point in terms of Iranian studies, in terms of our understanding of the Iranian heritage, because what it says is that. There were two major Iranian schools of thought, at least, at least. I actually think there were three, and、mm-hmm. you know, this is something we'll discuss in 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 other、um, in other、uh, you know sessions together.、Um, the Mithraic school of thought was the oldest of the Iranian schools of thought, but then there were at least two others subsequent to that, emerging from out of that Mithraic matrix. One was Zoroastrianism, but the other is what we call Buddhism today, or early Taoism. And this Buddhist or early Taoist school of thought was、uh, the vision of an Iranian sage, and it was a direct critique of Zoroastrianism. And the other thing that people need to remember is that it's not as if、uh, Gotama just, you know, came up with this worldview and then it, 
became a, a legacy bestowed to Asia and had no subsequent history in Iran. We are told by uh, writers in the Parthian period and in the Sasanian period that um, Eastern Iran was Buddhist. As a matter of fact, Eastern Iran was more Buddhist in that time than either Northern India or anywhere in Asia. And uh, the earliest Buddhist writings in China are full of Parthian vocabulary, which suggests that the translators who were who were uh, translating the Buddhist scriptures into Chinese were speakers of of uh, Parthian Pahlavi of the Iranian language of of that time. We also are told by uh, people who are you know writing travel logs of the period that the largest uh, Buddhist temples were in Iran, the Temple of No Bahar in Balkh, um, with its uh, ninety three uh, meter golden dome, was the largest Buddhist temple ever built in history. The largest Buddha uh, statues ever carved were in eastern Iran. You know, uh, Bamiyan in Afghanistan was part of Iran until 150 years ago. So those Bamiyan Buddhas that were tragically demolished by the Taliban in 2001, uh, those are Iranian sculptures. Mm -hmm. So you have the largest Buddhist temples in the world in Iran, largest Buddhist uh, uh, sculptures in Iran, and it appears that the um, missionaries who transmitted Buddhism to China and then further east into Asia by traveling along the Silk Route were all coming from eastern Iran. Well, the, um, something happened along the way because you're, as you described the culture of the Shramanas as, as uh, explored by the early Greek visitors, they didn't believe in uh, monasteries, they didn't have a Sangha or a community, but then later on we find great temples and, and and great statues. So uh, there must have been a uh, transformation. Sure, uh, you know, as the Jain school of thought started to take shape, and uh, as the Vedic philosophical schools organized themselves, I think that um, when they were establishing orders of monks and and nuns, and uh, you know, in the case of the Vedic philosophical schools, priestly hierarchies, the uh, Buddhists, the followers of, of, of Gautama's teaching, also probably felt under pressure to um, preserve their social influence by organizing themselves in a more disciplined fashion. Mm -hmm. But you also uh, you also notice in the course of uh, Buddhist history that after this phase of institutionalization, this um, a Theravada institutionalization, there is a kind of shift back to more antinomian, more anarchical teaching in some types of Mahayana Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And it's noteworthy in that regard that the champions of Mahayana Buddhism were the Kushan dynasty. And the Kushan dynasty of, of northern India and present-day Afghanistan were also Iranians. They mm -hmm. were Indo-Scythians. Mm -hmm. They were, uh, again, part of this um, eastern branch of the Iranian ethnic community. Uh, who organized the first congresses where the Mahayana texts were composed. King Kanishka, in particular, Kanishka the Great, uh, was the first patron of Mahayana Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Well, what you're painting ultimately is a, a picture in which the uh, Iranian culture had very direct, intimate contact not only with Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, but also Judaism, Christianity, Islam, uh, and uh, shamanic traditions as well. It seems to all be right there in Central Asia. I think that Iran is the uh, religious fulcrum of humanity. Mm -hmm. Well, Jason Reza Giorgiani, once again, a fascinating conversation. It's been a pleasure being with you, Jeffrey. Thank you. Thank you for being with me, and thank you for being with us. Thank you.